Let's pray before we start. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray that your word would have its due authority. It is your word, and we submit to it, we honor it, and we want to have open hearts to receive it and fertile soil that it can take root. So we ask, Lord, that your word would not be distracted from either from the delivery or in our own hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. The title I chose late last night is uh, Toward Maturity. If you were here the, uh, the first Sunday of April a couple months ago, you would remember that on, kind of on behalf of the English Council, I presented what we've called our four touchstones for English department ministry. And I'll just put them up there so you can see them. By the way, they are online. They are on our website. So if you ever want to go back and reference those and hold us to it, there it is. There are basically four essential, irreducible anchor points. And uh, I've kind of categorized them into four things. The first is our message. And our core message, what is our core message as a church? Our core message is the gospel, the gospel of salvation, the gospel that was once for all handed down to the saints. There's only one. We've been entrusted with it as a church. We need to be faithful to it. We need to deliver it to the world. And there's no other entity in the world that's been entrusted with the gospel. Number two is our primary guide, not our only guide, but our primary guide. And our primary guide is the scripture. It is God's written word, and it's the standard by which we evaluate every other material or anything that we use, anything we teach, the things we sing, need to be evaluated with the written word of God. And then the third was our key strategy, our key strategy. Again, not our only strategy, but our key strategy. And that is prayer. Our key strategy is not strategy. It's prayer. And I won't read the whole thing verbatim, but basically because the church is called to a spiritual work, we depend on prayer. As uh, Taku mentioned just in passing, it's our privilege and it's our mandate to pray. It's a mystery that God wants us to ask and to pray. And then the fourth is our essential outcome, the essential outcome that we are always aiming at. And it's something that's beyond our ability or our capability, and that is spiritual life and growth. And we emphasize that that only comes by the Holy Spirit, and it only comes by the Holy Spirit when we exercise faith through obedience to the gospel. And it's God's work, it's God's real work that he makes actual new creations. And so we set these out basically because we're living in an age that we're, we're practically swimming in things that distract us, things that, that draw us away, things that tempt us to compromise, things that lead to error, even from within our Christian sphere, within our Christian world. 
It's coming at us from every direction. So we as a church, we need to anchor ourselves to something that's solid. Because when we look at church history, when we look at church history, we see that it's only a matter of time when most churches or denominations or seminaries, they loosen their grip on these things and they lose them. You don't have to look very far into church history. You don't have to look very far in the past decade. And you can see that that's true. So with this in mind, what I'd like to do today is I want to build a little bit on that fourth one, on the fourth outcome, the essential outcome, which is spiritual life and growth. So just to review that one a bit, we emphasized that it's a, it's a necessary outcome because without it, there is no salvation. People aren't truly Christians if they do not have real spiritual life. And we need to understand that by definition, the church, the ecclesia, which means in Greek, the called out ones, that's what the church means, those called out, is made up only of those who have been reborn and have the Spirit of God dwelling in them. And those who truly know Jesus Christ based on faith and trust, like we sang today, trust and obey, surrender and love. And those who don't have that, they can't truly be part of the church body. Of course, they're welcome, but they can't participate really in the life of the church because it's a spiritual life. So if you were here the first Sunday of April, which is about two months ago now, you notice that I added on the and growth part uh, because really the full outcome isn't just spiritual birth, but it's actually the growth of the life from that birth. And some people were probably wondering why something as important as discipleship, for example, which, which is biblically mandated, you know, it's so important, and spiritual nurturing, why that wasn't on there. And part of the reason was time. And the other was that spiritual rebirth really is the starting point. Life starts from birth, as we know it. And you, you cannot nurture or disciple someone or expect spiritual growth from a person who doesn't have spiritual life. goes without saying. I mean, you can try your best to feed and nourish a corpse, a dead body, but it will be very frustrating. And that's true with trying to disciple people that don't have spiritual life. So, in a sense, then, spiritual growth is the expected outcome of the outcome. You know, when a baby's born, I mean, it's a living being, so we naturally expect it to grow. And as cute as babies are, we don't expect them to stay that way. In fact, if they did, if they did stay that way, it would be pretty distressing. And so the same way that physical growth proves that there's physical life, true spiritual growth is evidence of genuine spiritual life. So... It's this growth part that I want to take a little bit more of a look at today. So I want to turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 4, which Ephesians chapter 4, the first part of it is literally the anatomy of church body growth. And this is a rich passage. There's no way we can really dig into it as deeply as we could. But let's read through it here. The last time I did Ephesians 4, I didn't get past verse 1. So, this time I'm going to try to get through to verse 14. Ephesians 4. 
verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, the basis of that unity is what follows. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There's seven ones there. Do you remember um, when Jesus, in his prayer, just before he went to the cross, when he prayed to the Father, this is in John 17, he prayed that they may be one. Now, the first one, Ferris 11, that was referring to the disciples directly, to the 12 disciples. But the other two, 21 and 22, Jesus was praying for all believers who were to come. That's us. That's us. That they may all be one. And then the next verse, that they may be one. But then there's a balancing aspect to that, and that's right down here. There's a but. And that is, but grace was given to each one of us individually according to the measure of Christ's gift. We were watching the Truth Project yesterday, and uh, one of the topics that came up was the Trinity, how impossible it really is for us with our human minds to grasp what the Trinity is. But really, the Trinity, in, in its many aspects, it embodies oneness, but also uniqueness. And it's, it's, a, it's a mystery. But it's the mystery, too, of us as a church body. We are one, yet to each one of us has been given gifts like that. So, Romans 12 really enlarges on this very well. I'll just read it. Just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. So, with this in mind, let's move down to verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. That's one sentence. It's 93 words. <laughs> so, let's go through it phrase by phrase, and I'm going to try to do this uh, in a 
expedited manner. But I think if we can lay out the uh, phrases in a more graphical way, I think it makes it a little bit easier to follow. Let's start with, he gave. He gave. So just as we saw in the previous verses, these gifts are given by Christ's grace. By the way, if you were at our fall retreat last year, we, we called it our MCC family weekend. We spent the weekend looking at 2 Peter chapter 1. And if you remember, there was a key verse in there, and that is, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Wow. So, let's start with this. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds, or shepherd teachers. The Greek word can be read either way. And we're, uh, we're certainly familiar with shepherds and teachers. We have one. His name's Ron Sisko, and he's on vacation right now. We also have a Japanese department that does not have a shepherd, per se, but let me just say this. As Taka mentioned, when we were without a pastor, we had to come to grips with the fact that we were not without a head and that he gave, he gave. And that was one of our prayers, that God would raise up people to fill those needs at the time. And God did. God was faithful in bringing people to us and raising up people from within our body to meet those needs in that 18 months. And God was faithful in that. Um, We want to encourage our Japanese brothers and sisters in that way. So evangelists, well, we've had those around, of course, for a long time. We think of those who travel around and hold large meetings, like uh, Billy Graham, who preached the gospel to millions of people. And they're not necessarily connected with any particular church. But what about those two, the apostles and the prophets? Well, we believe that those first two offices... When those apostles, when those apostles that were appointed, when they died off, there's no biblical record of the apostles ever replacing themselves, except for the case of Matthias, when uh, he replaced Judas in Acts 1. And that was God that replaced him. So the the apostles really were, were replaced by elders and deacons and pastors. And then for prophets, of course, we think of people that foretell the future, but... uh, And many times the prophets, of course, in the Bible did foretell the future. But uh, essentially a prophet is someone who delivers God's word. And really once the church was established and once the apostles' teaching was collected and certified and canonized into our New Testament, there wasn't the same dependency on prophecy. So for our purposes then, if you go back two chapters in Ephesians, this really I think explains it well. But you are members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles' and prophets were built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What we have now then is we have the apostles and the prophets in our scripture and it's our permanent written record. It's the word of God that we have in written form. So we have the word of God given by the Holy Spirit through the prophets and apostles and other servants of God too and we have our present-day evangelists, and we have pastors and teachers, and we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, as Ron preached last week. And he works in us. He's the one that does the heart work. So as for all these offices, then, let's look at their primary role. 
And that is to equip the saints, that's us, for the work of ministry. For the work of ministry. Hang on a sec. I thought our pastor was the minister. And he's the one that does the ministry. But actually, we're all intended to be ministers. Grace was given to each one of us. And 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So we are all, all of us, or we at least we should be, being equipped to do the ministry in MCC. All of us who have been reborn by the Holy Spirit. You know, there's no gift listed out of the many gifts in the Bible of church attender or of observer. Nowhere in the New Testament. All right? And then we see the larger purpose. And that is for, for building up, for building up the body of Christ. Each one of us has a part in building up the body of Christ. None of us is exempt. So let me just do this. I'm going to just highlight the key words here. And I'll fade out the other words. So you can get a little bit of a look at that. Now I'm just going to read a few verses that give examples. And this is not exhaustive, but it gives examples of what builds up the body. Just a few verses down in chapter 4, it says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion so that it may give grace to those who hear. So we can dispense grace to others, or not, by what we say, by the content of what we talk about. And then another verse, actually, in the same chapter here, chapter 4, it says, Speak truth, each of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of each other. And then Romans 14, 19 says, to pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. How about 1 Corinthians 8, 1? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Not much more I can add to that. And then 1 Thessalonians 5:11 says, therefore, encourage one another. And build up one another just as you also are doing. I love this church. It is an encouraging body. It's what the building up of the body is. One more. It wasn't in the book of Ephesians. In the book of Acts, when Paul was talking to the Ephesian elders, he said... Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. Let's move on to the next slide here. Until, until we all, we all attain. No one is to be left behind. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And that goes right back to verses 3 to 6. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And it's not just unity. It's not just unity for unity's sake. It's not just unity, you know, kind of a, a warm feeling of togetherness. And it's not just unity by compromise. 
just to kind of be the same as each other. The unity has a focal point, and it's the faith and of the knowledge, the knowledge of the Son of God. And again, referring back to our family fall weekend last fall, we talked about the word in Greek, epignosis, which means the true knowledge. It's the the full or intimate or thorough knowledge. And that's what our unity is based on. The faith and the true knowledge of the Son of God. Then, next preposition, we see the extent. And that is to mature manhood. To mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Like we said before, if when we have babies, we expect our babies to grow and develop. And even though we love our kids, we don't expect them to stay being kids. We expect them to continue to grow into mature adults who become responsible and self-sufficient. What sets apart children from adults other than size? What do we think? What comes to mind? Wisdom? Stability? Responsibility? Trustworthiness? Self-control? More practically, mature people have experience and knowledge, right? Kids just assume that adults just know what to do, right? And they, they would do the right thing. So the Greek word for mature really means full-grown. It means full-grown or completely developed, having gone through all the necessary steps to reach completeness. And it's the same word that Paul uses in Colossians 1.28, says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The Greek word can also be complete or perfect in Christ. And uh, just to add to that, Philippians 3.15, Paul says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And that's usually where we end it. But the next part is, let those of us who are mature think this way. And sometimes even uh, negative examples are helpful in contrasting to help us understand the positive. Here the writer of Hebrews talks about spiritual immaturity. And uh, this is this is really a key passage here, I think. Let's read through it. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Oracle simply means revelation or word of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who, okay, mark this right here, have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And then, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not ready for solid food, needing baby food, so to speak, being unskilled in the word of righteousness. But the mature possess the powers of discernment. 
for distinguishing good from evil, trained by constant practice, discernment. So let's go back to our Ephesians passage here. Until we all, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And what's the outcome? What's the outcome of that? So that, so that, so that we may no longer be children. Moving on to solid food, skilled in the word of righteousness, having our powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish between good and evil. No longer tossed to and fro by the waves. That would be, you know, losing our footing because of difficulty or adversity. And carried about by every wind of doctrine. Every wind of doctrine. By human cunning. By craftiness in deceitful schemes. You know, there's a lot that needs to be said in the church today about winds of doctrine and the need for discernment. This is what Paul said to the Ephesian elders almost 2,000 years ago. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, among you, not sparing the flock, And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. If he was warning that to the early church, how much more do we need to take that to heart, especially when we have 2,000 years of church history? Church history affirms it. I know I keep harping on this, but I believe that there has never been a time in church history where there have been more varieties of winds of doctrine. Some are really easy to see. Some of them we're well familiar with. It comes to our door, comes to our mailbox, watchtower literature. You know, some have even come to our church. Mormon missionary came in wanted to hang out with the fourth service young people. They do that. They do that. Churches are an easy mission field. Churches are an easy mission field. They come in, they look for people around the edges. New Christians, seekers, and they're easy to pick off because they know that they're interested in Christianity, but they're not grounded Mainline cults like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, they're easy to see, yeah? We know them. Mormons especially, they wear name tags. <laughs> and most of us know enough to steer clear of them. But what's more insidious, what's more dangerous, is what comes at us from within the evangelical world. I mean, it's not only just the huge amount of print media that we have right now, like Christian books and magazines and audiovisual media, music, movies. Man, have you ever seen so many movies come out? Religious movies? But then we have the internet. We've never had easier access to 
every conceivable source of information. It's in our pockets. Ebooks, magazines, blogs, podcasts, videos, music, social media. And it's a free for all. It's a free for all. There's no safeguards, especially on the internet. We're not protected by geography anymore. When things go viral, even when books go viral, they spread to every corner of the world and has an effect on the church, even in the most faraway places. So there's never been a time, I believe, when the church has needed discernment more than now. And you guys, I'm, I, have to, I feel like I have to give this example because it's an issue that's out there right now and we as a church leadership are having to grapple with it. A few weeks ago, you might remember that Ron called out a book when he was talking about deception of the church. The book was called The Shack. Many of you might be familiar with it. I'm sure you've heard of it. Many of you might have read it. It was first published in 2007 by just word of mouth and blogs and endorsement by popular Christian artists and promoted by many bookstores. The Shack ended up on the New York Times bestseller list for a year and a half on one of their bestseller lists. And at this point, it sold over 20 million copies all around the world. It's been translated into many languages. But you know, I remember, I remember when it came out and during all that early hype and popularity, some Christian leaders were saying, and Ron and Katie were among them, something isn't quite right here. Among other things, there was some troubling elements about its portrayal of God and kind of its flattening out of the Trinity. But even more, it, it seemed to allude to a, a universalist doctrine of salvation. Universalist doctrine of salvation basically teaches that because Christ died, at least this type of universalist doctrine believes that since Christ died, that every person is now saved, whether they believe it or not. Except that his editors, I think, understood that if that was published, it would not fly. And so they toned it down. And so it was subtle enough in the book, it was hard to really nail it down until earlier this year. Uh, the Shack was made into a movie, and it was released in March, right about the same time that Paul Young, the author of the original book, right about the same time in the movie's released, he released another book. Not a novel, but more of a, um, a theological book called Lies We Believe About God. It's very interesting timing because it not only removed any question about the theology behind the shack, but he also took down a few other standard Christian doctrines as well. So he came out, let's just say. Let me uh, give you just a little bit of a sample of what he writes. The good news is not that Jesus has opened up the possibility of salvation and that you have been invited to receive Jesus into your life. The gospel is that Jesus has already included you into his life, into his relationship with God the Father, and into his anointing in the Holy Spirit. The good news is that Jesus did this without your vote. Whether you believe it or not won't make it any less or more true. The book is kind of written in a conversational form, so then he poses this question as if asking himself, are you suggesting that everyone is saved? 
that you believe in universal salvation? Quote, that is exactly what I am saying. What does he do with John 3.36? He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, for the wrath of God abides on him. Or John 8.24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. It's a different gospel. It's a gospel without repentance. It's a gospel without faith and without spiritual rebirth. And it gives people false hope. The thing is, Paul Young did not become a universalist since he wrote the shack. People who know him said that he held that belief before he wrote it. I'm not just here to harangue on the shack. Our main concern is that despite that this is now out in the open, the book continues to be sold in Christian bookstores, reputable Christian bookstores, and the movie continues to be promoted within Christian circles all over the world and now in Japan. Some people might think we're making too big of a deal out of it or that we're being alarmist or that uh, we're being unnecessarily divisive. But make no mistake that there's a certain strand of theology. It's an alternative way of understanding God and the gospel that's being advanced. When you read down the comment threads in Amazon, people's comments on the shack, their comments are not, it was a great story. The comments are, oh, it really blessed me and changed my understanding of God. It's not biblical. The foundation is not biblical. You guys, we can't be too careful. That's only one example. There are many. You know, everything, every teaching is on a trajectory. It's going somewhere. And at first you might think, you know, it's not really that far off. But over time, it ends up a long way away. If you drive in Japan, you know what this is like. You get on a street and the traffic is heavy. So you think, you know, I'm going to take a parallel street. I'm going to go one block over and take a parallel street. And you end up five miles away from where you thought you were going to be. You can get on a train and you can think it's going to go somewhere. You can feel good about that train. And when people are coming to our house, you know, we give, try to give pretty careful instructions. But they end up in Hajima rather than Tokorozawa. So let me just say it again. It's, it's really a free-for-all out there. Christian publishers and Christian bookstores, and not to mention Christian colleges and even seminaries, are no safeguard anymore. And many people, including church leaders, end up swallowing things that have poison in them. The shack isn't all bad, but it has a poison pill in it. And people take it in often simply because it's popular. That we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Not by accident, but by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. 
1 Corinthians 14, 20 says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. Does it make sense? Does it make sense why maturity is so crucial for all of us? Why discernment is so essential for all of us? Why we all need to have our powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish between good and evil. We need shepherds who teach the full truth. We need evangelists who preach the true gospel. And we all need to know to know the word of God, the whole counsel of God, through the apostles and the prophets and other servants inspired by the Holy Spirit. You know, nothing substitutes for just plain old systematic reading through the Bible and studying the Bible, asking the Lord to help us understand its truth and take it to heart. You know, verse of the day, that's like taking one bite of food and that's my meal. You can't survive on that. You can't. It's not going to sustain you through the day. We see from church history, I'll say this again, we see this from church history that those who hold to the scripture as written and I need to say this, through an accurate translation and then faithfully preach the soul-saving gospel, they bear spiritual fruit. But those who are open to new perspectives, and some of you might know what I'm talking about there, or who let the cultural trends of the day or human reason influence their approach to Scripture, it does not end well. Those groups eventually waste away and dry up spiritually. The organizations might continue, and many do, but they are void of spiritual life and spiritual power, and they have nothing of eternal value to offer. So let me just close here with 2 Peter 3.15, because it really pulls this together well. Peter starts by talking about Paul. So listen to this. Our beloved brother Paul, I'm going to start in the middle of the verse. Our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they also do the rest of the scriptures. Wow. Peter is affirming that what Paul writes as an apostle is scripture. As they do the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. This is serious. The mishandling of God's word, the mishandling of the truth, is a dangerous thing. And then he continues, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your Son to be our atonement, our Redeemer, our head. Lord, I pray that we would, as a church, 
stand firm in the truth of your word, in the truth of Jesus Christ, in the truth of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and that you sent the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of truth. Lord, may we stand firm in you, in your truth, and walk in the truth. And think of John in, in, I think it's 2nd or 3rd John, says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Lord, may that be true of us. May we, as a church body, as all together, may we love you, you as our first love, and be faithful to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.